Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And hey, remember when we talked to Dr. Maddie von Beyer about tiny plants? I do. Okay, good. I was giving everyone a moment to remember. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was there. Today, we are going to get even tinier. Um, We've got another special guest expert. Um, This time it's Dr. Kristen Roth, who studies plant micro-remains. Not macro-remains, (laughs) micro-remains. So um, hi, Chris, and thanks for being on the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for inviting me on the podcast. Yay! Yeah, well, we are thrilled to have you here, but could you start off by telling us about the trajectory of education or fieldwork that got you to where you are today? Um, Like, did you always want to do plant micro remains. Um, And and then also, if you could tell us what you're working on these days. Yeah. So I didn't always want to do plant micro remains, but I have basically always wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, I think my mother tells a story back in like fourth grade. I started down the road of wanting to be an anthropologist and it's just gone downhill since then. Uh, Rude. (laughs) um, But in college, I really started down the archaeology road, uh, majored in classical Greek archaeology in college, um, and ended up on a field project in Greece where I got to assist our archaeobotanist and learn how to set up a flotation machine and play in the dirt with all the plant bits. And that sort of started my, I don't know, interest in in plant remains in archaeology. Um, Because I think one of the things is that I like archaeology because I'm interested in everything. And by studying archaeology, I can study everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of the same with plants. By studying plants, I get to play in all the different kinds of archaeology. So, yeah, once I got to grad school, I kind of just went tinier and tinier and tinier until I got <laughs> plant micro-remains. Uh, you, you very casually mentioned the site in Greece that you worked <laughs> at, but it was it was a kind of a big site. It was. So I started at the field school at uh, Mycenae, um, which is, yeah, kind of a big deal. Got to go to work a few days through the lion's gate, looking up at the, the lion staring down at me. So that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah I, whatever. Say. Yeah. <laughs> and are you still are you still working there? Like, are you still affiliated with that project, or no, are you um, elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so I did quite a few years there in Greece, um, and then once I was in grad school, I sort of switched focuses to working in France, um, which is where I met Anna. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, that's basically Anna's fall. So switched to uh, France and Neanderthals and did that for a while. And then right now I have a postdoctoral research position at the University of Tübingen in Germany, um, where we're focusing on a couple sites in South Africa. So I've gone also further back in time looking at the middle and later Stone Age periods in South Africa. Okay. Are you in Germany? I am not. I'm in Florida. Okay. I'm sort of trapped here right now. Because <laughs> okay. Of yeah. Because pandemic yeah, fun. Like... <laughs> 
How um how long ago, like how old are the sites that you're working at in South Africa when you're not trapped in Florida? <laughs> uh, we're still trying to figure that out. So um, oh. the three sites that we're working on, um, one has had some dating done, but the two sites that we just started excavating, um, we're still waiting for some OSL dates to come back. But we're guessing... Some of the the hope was maybe 200,000 years ago, um, and we're still trying to figure out. But we're looking at also maybe like 50,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago. So it's kind of that range. A range. Okay. Yeah. okay. Cool. So you study some of the very, very tiniest types of archaeological material. <laughs> so what made you, you know, you, you sort of broad gave us the broad strokes of first of all being interested in plants in general because they're everywhere and then going smaller and smaller but what what got you hooked on particularly micro remains but have you always been sort of focused on plants rather than any other feature of the archaeological record sort of so i guess when i was applying to grad school i kind of had two paths in front of me and i was either interested in sort of more sort of museum archival stuff related to textiles uh, or mm-hmm. the kind of sciencey plant road. And I clearly ended up going down that road. And I guess one of the things that drew me to uh, plant microremains in, in general and phytoliths in specific is that it's still kind of an expanding field, or I guess because we haven't figured it all out yet. Um, obviously, we've known about phytoliths and plant microremains for quite a while. I mean, phytoliths one of the first things that people talk about is that like Darwin scooped up phytoliths and dust on the decks of the Beagle. Um, so we've clearly known about them for a while, but we're still figuring out the best ways to study them. Um, so that was really interesting to me was this kind of room for expansion. Um, and then also I really like them because we can use it to ask questions that you can't necessarily answer with other types of plant remains. So um, plants can sometimes be pretty fragile or prone to destruction for a lot of things. Whereas with the micro remains, we can, they're a little more robust. So we can sort of push things further back that way too. Uh, Real quick. What are phytoliths? (laughs) Other than something that was, you know, on the decks of the beagle. (laughs) So could you um, go into a bit more detail for our listeners? Because, like, obviously, everybody here knows. So <laughs> obviously, obviously. Uh, but could you um, tell us more about cool. what exactly a phytolith is? And Phytoliths 101. Yeah. Oh. And, and what kind of information archaeologists can get from them, like from Definitely. just sort of like the basics to like the big picture. Yeah, so it's funny. I was actually just listening to your episode on, um, like, the Green Sahara yeah. episode. Oh, thanks for listening. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> there was a whole discussion there about, like, silica and how silica is in so many different things. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so this is another place where silica is kind of in everything. Um, so plants, as they're growing and doing their normal plant things, are taking in different kinds of nutrients and minerals and everything from the soil around them or from the groundwater. And they use those minerals for a variety of things. And so one of the things that they actually take in is dissolved silica. And so they take that silica and they deposit it in and around their cells and in the cell walls and things for a whole variety of purposes. It can help with structure in the 
plant. Um, it can help keep out like diseases and pests. Um, it can help with water regulation. Um, and then it can even help deter, uh, uh, like herbivores and things like that because it's actually so dense. It can like wear down your teeth and make it uh, oh, less. Makes nice the plants to too crunchy. It, it Yeah. It's like crunchy grossness. <laughs> Um, you can even sometimes like if you pick a blade of grass, if you've ever like run your finger along the edge of a blade of grass and it kind of feels like sticky or spiky, Mm -hmm. those are some of these like minerals and silica sticking out of the plant, um, that you can actually feel. Oh, wow. Listeners, if you want to take a moment and go outside and do that, just pause the podcast. Just normal, the grass in your plant or in your backyard probably has it. So, so it's like plant armor. It can, exactly. It can be like, Oh my God, you're blowing my mind. Oh yeah. It's quite (laughs) crazy. And I mean, they, they use other minerals for this too, but, um, the silica really, it has so many purposes and we're still kind of figuring out in what plant, what silica does and and how it can change in different plant species and things. Um, it's so so much more than the little, the little pouches that you get in your packets of turkey pepperoni. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Or in your shoe boxes or yeah. Yeah. Shows are my head. <laughs> um, so the silica not all plants collect silica but a lot of them do um, and some things like grasses like i mentioned there's some of the biggest um, collectors and producers of silica um, whereas like trees have other mechanisms for some of those structural things so they might not um, take in as much silica in some ways um, so as the plants living and accumulating the silica, it builds up in the cell walls and everything. Um, and then after the plant dies, either through natural means or if someone comes and collects it, uh, that plant starts to dehydrate and that will kind of free the silica from its organic confines. Um, and it'll dehydrate and harden into these little silica kind of skeletons of the, of the plant cells. Okay. So it's, it's not like it, it it doesn't like crumble or anything into pure silica or something like just go with me here um it's it it like preserves the shape of those cell walls it does and so it it can either have like a specific shape of an actual cell or it can be just kind of this lumpy amorphous shape of when it's in between cell walls or um in another place so it's not purely diagnostic like it's not like you look at a phytolith and you're like i know what this came from like it's exactly okay you just know Uh, it came from plant and then another thing actually based on what you just said it can be kind of cool because sometimes as those cells are decaying and dehydrating the the phytolith can actually trap little pieces of the organic matter in them um, so you can oh, actually like even use phytoliths for like um, radiocarbon dating and things like that. What? Mm-hmm. And when I said like amber, I, I meant the, the <laughs> tree tree sap. Yeah. I didn't mean my co-host. I mean, I also get stuff stuck on me, so it's fine. <laughs> so you can relate. We all do. <laughs> it's very relatable. Um, wow. But that would be a tiny amount of material that could be dated. It like, is. Do you need so a lot? Need- you need a lot of phytoliths to do that or you do you um so you'll usually extract them from sediment or um from a vessel or something like that and then you kind of um uh extract the organic matter from that so you do need quite a few um but it can definitely be done okay so it's not like you know my days of one date pit 
We'll do it. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking of phytoliths and the kind of data that you can get mm-hmm. from them, do you have any sort of off the t- off the dome? Are there cases where phytolith data has provided particularly cool information about how people used to live? Just anything that maybe kind of really captured your interest while you were sort of learning the ropes of phytolith studies or even from your own work? Yeah. So one of the things that I really like, as I mentioned, is that so a lot of types of plant remains, um, you know, if we I think like on the episode that you have of tiny plant bits talking about like carbonized remains or charcoal that can really last in the archaeological record. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of plants don't end up getting burnt or fossilized or something like that. Um, So sometimes it can be really hard to answer some questions questions about plants in the past. Um, so one of the things that I really like is, uh, this woman called, uh, Dolores Paperno, who literally like wrote the book on phytoliths. Yep. Um, yeah, she is amazing. Uh, some of her work has focused on ancient agriculture and, you know, we know a lot about agriculture in say Mesopotamia, the near East places like that. But we also know that agriculture arose independently in places like China or the Americas, um, and those places are harder to study in terms of plants because this kind of subtropical, neotropical environment is really hard on a lot of types of plant remains. Um, so using plant microfossils like um, phytoliths, starches, pollen, all that kind of stuff has allowed us to start to answer some questions about how and when and where agriculture arose in the Americas. Um, And so we can see this whole new world of pre-Columbian cultures who are modifying their landscape and their environment in a way that uh, previously archaeologists didn't really think that they were were doing. Um, And that's through identifying things like maize and squash and manioc and beans and all that kind of stuff using these kinds of um, plant microfossils. Uh, was very cool. So awesome. I think we saw Amber. Do you remember when we did a recent old news? There was a little news piece about farming in the Amazon. Yeah, that was River um, Basin last it was month. Like, I think wasn't it yeah. Gizmodo that did the story on it? <laughs> Gizmodo. Yes. Gizmodo. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And so, yeah, there had been evidence for farming or at least modification of the land to support agricultural plants like cassava um, way earlier than people had thought. Yeah, they did survey like in their survey. They found like tens of thousands of these little islands in the forest uh, that would have like that they reasoned would be places where this sort of intensive agriculture would have taken place and they did yeah, ground truth for a handful soil. of them and it's just yeah. like yup sure is sure, sure is so it's it's sort of like the tip of the iceberg of this like really huge um revelation about sort of the history of agriculture in the americas definitely yeah, yeah so it's really it's so cool yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, you're really in an area of archaeology where things can still be totally rewritten, which is very, very cool. Yeah, that's exactly one of the things that I love about it, because it is. Um, so, yeah, if you think about agriculture, you know, we think about obviously we think about the seeds of plants as the things that or, you know, or charcoal wood kind of things as the things that we see in the archaeological record. Um, but if, if you think about the process for agriculture, especially in a place where it's not 
you know, traditional like wheat or barley, something like that. Um, the process for what you're doing, how you're planting things, how you're harvesting it, how you're processing, you know, how you process maize or how you process a squash is totally different. Um, and so it's pretty cool to see things like the starches and the phytoliths be used to show us all those different parts of the process that were pretty much invisible before. Um, I know there's also been some great work done on like rice processing and harvesting um, in China using using phytoliths and and plant microbes. So um, it's pretty cool to see these different plant bits that are usually um, invisible on the record. Oh, speaking of plants (laughs) and their bits (laughs) in the archeological record, do you have a favorite archeological plant? We asked Dr. Von Beyer this, so, you know, and like continuity. I, it sort of was um, a bit of a pleasant surprise that she had one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I was, I've been thinking about this uh, <laughs> now and trying to figure out what I would categorize as my favorite archaeological plant bit. And I think it's also kind of tied to this question of like, why am I interested in phytoliths? And then also like, why am I interested in in plants in the past. Um, And so I think my answer would be there's these crazy plant remains at the site of Sabudu in South Africa. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Where essentially it's this cave site and they found these layers, sometimes like a centimeter thick of plant remains in this, you know, middle stone age site. And they're trying to figure out what, the plant remains were used for. And so they used a combination of phytolith analysis and uh, some soil micromorphology to look at these more in depth. And they found that these, you know, between, I don't know, like 60 and 70,000 years ago, um, these anatomically modern humans were collecting plants from near the river, bringing them all the way back to the cave and laying down these matting or these like bedding sites. And it's some of the earliest evidence that we have for humans making um these beds making their beds yeah exactly and then the even cooler thing is that so we know people use plants for all kinds of things so building eating them uh, but we also use plants as medicine or as like a deterrent Mm -hmm. or something like that and so there's some tantalizing evidence at sabudu that that there's this specific kind of plant um, called a Cape Laurel that they found in some of the very earliest layers at the site. And this is like a super aromatic plant that's used a lot of the times in traditional medicine, like even today. Um, And it can be used to kill insects. So So it's like like bay leaves. So you put bay leaves in your cab, in your pantry and it keeps bugs away because it's another type of laurel. You do? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I put bay, bay leaves in my pantry, but that's because they're there and I can No, if you them. have like loose bay but leaves. You can I also, if you have like, if you're trying to store sweaters or yarn or something, um, you can throw a couple bay leaves in there and it'll keep. Oh, it's like mothballs. Yep. But it smells better. Huh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Anything smells better than mothballs. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it looks like these early modern humans were like using their all natural mothballs to try and do some pest repellent at their wow. site. Wow. And I just think that's really cool. Like that's looking awesome. at something that's 70,000 years ago and we can see see this like specific you can just see it so clearly someone coming into the cave we're setting up our nice bed near our fire i'm gonna make it smell nice and keep the bugs away and like i just think that's such a cool moment in history to be able to see it's also well, very it's a, a humanizing yeah it's a great point of connection yeah because i also don't want bugs in my bed totally <laughs> i a human being i don't want that <laughs> no no thank you 
Well, and like if you're thinking about you know an analogous experience for for us would be like going camping like something where you would yeah. be like sleeping on the ground and like there's an entire industry for like pest repellent and so you're just like i get it like this is <laughs> wake exactly. up sheeple just use bay leaves yeah well especially being in florida where we're surrounded by super oh intense God. bugs all the time i'm like yeah what can i rub on myself before i leave the front door so you just shake a a bay bow at them yeah <laughs> It repels evil and bugs and bugs and neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> well, in this time of social distancing, that's what we all need. Exactly. And actually, that is where the phrase to keep someone at bay comes from. Huh. It comes from yeah, because um, bay laurel, in fact, was viewed as apotropaic, as sort of casting out evil. And so to keep someone at bay, uh, often bay leaves were hung above doorways or sort of in the house uh, to sort of ward off bad things. I love how we have just become like the snake eating its own tail of nerdy facts. That's fine. <laughs> we just, <laughs> we've achieved our final form. The fact Ouroboros. Level up. Ah, <laughs> who wants a fact Ouroboros t-shirt? I do. All right. Uh, while I come up with that design, listeners, we're going to take a very quick ad break and then we'll be right back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And we're back. We've still got Dr. Kristen Roth here with us. Thank goodness, because Amber and I certainly don't know anything about this. Um, So, Chris. It seems like from what you've told us that phytoliths are this fantastic resource for archaeologists, but like any archaeological material, there you know it comes with some caveats. So before our listeners get too excited and start scooping up handfuls of dust to answer all their burning questions, what are some some cautionary tales for for analysis with phytoliths? Well, I still suggest scooping up handfuls of dust for yeah, always always. <laughs> Um, well, well, like Amber kind of alluded to um, a few minutes ago, as the plants are growing and making their phytoliths, they're not necessarily doing it in, in perfect little easily identifiable blobs every time. Um, you, you mean they don't spell out the words, I am a dandelion? <laughs> I really wish they did. But I think you might remember um, some discussion 
and of diatoms, which are also made of silica and also sort of these little silica skeletons. And mm-hmm. they have these beautiful, regular shapes that show up super nicely. Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, and I wish phyllis were like that, but they are sadly not. <laughs> um, so some plant species make very nice, easily identifiable phytoliths that you can look at the phytolith and say, yes, this, this is from a banana or from maize. Um, but more often than not, plants in the same family will make similarly shaped phytoliths. Oh, so no. we might be able to look at a phytolith and say, this came from a grass. Uh, we might be able to look at it and say, this came from a grass that's adapted to growing in a cooler, wetter environment, but I'm not going to be able to look at it necessarily and say that came from this specific grass species. Um, so that's one issue is, is specificity. Um, and then the other, it's both a blessing and a curse is one plant species or one specific plant will make multiple types of phytoliths within itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could have plants in the inflorescence, or it could have phytoliths in the inflorescence. It could have them in the leaves. It could have them in the stem. And then those will all be different shapes. The what? The infl- what? I'm sorry. In the uh, flowering part. Or the Thank seeds. you. Yeah. <laughs> oh! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's me putting it together etymologically. <laughs> Inflorescence. <laughs> yeah. The flowering. Yeah. So, yeah. but not not fluorescence. No, not. It's... Yeah, that's what I thought too. And I was like, what part of a plant glows like a light bulb? Yes, it's only <laughs> in the shiny part. Yeah. So, yeah, phytoliths, incredible resource. Not the answer to everything, as it turns right. out. Sadly. So we kind of use, we'll do a few more things like maybe doing indices. So we can compare some of those different shapes um, or we look at suites of shapes of the different phyllus to say, oh, it's more likely to be, um, we can look at like dynamics of grassland versus woodland um, or sort of uh, landscape level change like that. Um, or, uh, I mean, it is helpful in terms of agriculture because you can look at, so we tend to harvest the inflorescences. Um, so mm-hmm. if you see a lot of those kinds of phytoliths, you know, we're looking at maybe storage. Whereas if you're seeing more leaf and stem phytoliths, maybe we're looking at more processing, something like that. So yeah. it can be hard if you're just looking at it with no control, but if you're looking at it within context, it can be helpful. As so with everything in archaeology context. Exactly. <laughs> So when you're doing this, it's not, you're not getting like a sort of manifest of what was growing here. You're not saying like in this environment, we know that we had these three types of, of, of grasses growing. And then we have this that would have been like this domesticate. And then they've got these trees. Like you, you aren't sort of painting a picture of like the flora environment. You're looking more at like ratio of like if this were a, a wooded environment you'd see a higher incident like so you're not you're not like diagnosing like actual like this <laughs> um, type of plant both. Type i would of say plant. we're kind of more we're, we're doing impressionist strokes in a lot of ways okay. <laughs> um you know so sometimes at a site especially if you you know you know you're working on an agricultural site in 
in the Near East, right? We already kind of know some of the species that probably would have been there, and that right. can help us narrow it down a lot better. Um, and then in those regions where we do kind of know more about uh, what could have been there, people are doing some amazing things with like computer programs and digital imaging and and morphometrics to like measure and map the size and shapes of the the surface texture on phytoliths. And so that can actually like help you differentiate between specific kinds of domesticates and that kind of thing. Um, but if you're pushing it back further in time or to a region where we might not know as much what could have been there, um, it is a little bit more broad strokes of, okay, you know, so I'm in South Africa, we're looking at, well, it would have been more like savanna or grassland, or we see more wooded plants something like that okay and then um and then also is it something where you can look you're, you're getting a sense for the site as a whole or if you're if you're doing so if you're doing like flotation of sediments pulled from like different parts of a a single site would you be able to say like oh well over here like clearly there was some like gardening happening or like <laughs> this must have been like more of a like a place where plants would be processed before going to the the area that had like the hearth in it for cooking. Like, would you, would you be able to get a sense of like, there are no plants, like there's no plant remains over here. This must've been something else, something else, like something that would have been like sealed off from the outside or, you know. Right. I think you can kind of use it for a lot of different things. And I, my cautionary thing about phytoliths or plant, well, any kind of micromains in general is that you can't really do them in isolation um, because we're at such a focused microscopic level. It's too easy to kind of get, you know, you're just sitting there with your microscope counting your phytoliths and you kind of forget the big picture, which yeah. can then make it hard to interpret. So you want to, you know, if, as a phytolith analyst or something coming into a site, I kind of think about the overall research questions and then based on what we want to know as a group, we can target it to those different questions. So you might think about, we could sample along a whole sediment uh, profile to look at like larger scale change through time and sort of bigger dynamics of what's being brought into a site, what's not, um, and then how it might change in terms of the environment. Okay. Or you could do a little more sort of synchronic sampling where you're looking at different areas of the site at the same time to say, you know, yeah, plants were being used over here or processed over here or stored over here. Um, and so you can use it for both sorts of things. And then it's always best when paired with some other kind of analysis. So maybe you're working with a, a macrobotanist who's like, oh yeah, we have a cache of burnt grains over here, but we're trying to figure out where they were processing the, the plant remains. Um, or maybe you want to work with the site geologist to see, okay, well, we know at this point there was a river near the site and then we think it goes away. Can we pinpoint when the environment changed to see, um, you know, when, when the, the geological dynamics changed as well. Okay, great. No, that's so really helpful because I think that, um, it's easy to be introduced to work like yours and think that like, oh, we're just going to bring, like, we're going to bring Chris in and she's going to do her thing. And then we'll see what she comes up with in terms of like, here are your plants. And then like they can say, it, but you have to actually like be working You're part of the team. in concert yeah. with, with the like other, 
other specialists and the excavators and, and framing like what is the research question because you can't like it sounds like it's impossible to sort of be like this is this is plants like writ large like you actually Absolutely. have to. I mean, you can uh you know I've, I've worked on some projects before where someone's like i have these 15 samples can you look at them and see if there's stuff in them and it, it works and like yeah you can look at them and and say something about it uh but the quality of of data and interpretation that you're going to get by actually being integrated into the research questions um, yeah. is is so much higher. Um, and I, I think that about not just my list, but about a lot of different kinds of archaeological data. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, okay. Well, that's that's enough of me grilling you on, <laughs> on that. Um, but so speaking about just sort of your excavation experience or just your field experience, like you don't have to be like digging a hole um like you've worked in all kinds of amazing places like Mycenae um and you're like working very cool places right now and with very cool materials do you have a favorite field work story that is fit for an all ages audience <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, can be I'm an embarrassing fit. one with me if you want <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that actually so because I do have a few <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been so incredibly lucky for all the different places I've worked. Um, started working in Greece and then also got to work in Italy and a couple places in France and now South Africa. And they're all amazing in different ways. Um, and yeah, I have one of my favorite memories is in France when we essentially had a discussion with the people that were in charge of the dig as to how easy it was to make fire. Hmm. So the guys running the dig went out and got like a, here's how to make fire like a prehistoric person kit for children. (laughs) Which they sell sell it at a lot of the tourist shops. So so Uh some context, this is at the site (laughs) of La Ferrasie working with a team led by, among others, Harold Dibble and Paul Goldberg, who mm-hmm. was both of our, he was briefly my advisor, but he stayed Chris's advisor. Um, mostly because I switched to fauna and then Paul was like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> um, and they have, so basically what happens in the Neanderthal record of the of Southwest France in the Middle Paleolithic is that during... Um, Warmer and wetter climate phases, when you would have more fuel plants on the landscape, you see plenty of evidence for Neanderthals using fire. Mm -hmm. In the cooler, drier periods, for whatever reason, (laughs) that evidence for fire goes away a lot. Yeah, there's very little evidence for Neanderthal use of fire. And so there's this discussion, and uh, Harold and Paul at all are very firmly on one side of this discussion about whether Neanderthals sort of kept the ability to make fire, but just didn't, or some populations had the ability to make fire, some didn't, or nobody had the ability to make fire. And there were fewer lightning strikes on the landscape that would create harvestable natural fires. Right. So the idea is is, use versus creation, like use versus sparking. Yeah. Yeah. Control. Okay. Yeah. And this is like a huge debate that is still raging in, in Paleolithic archaeology. A hot Um, debate as it were. A heated Yeah. There's some really interesting evidence for both sides and it's really complicated. Um, And so, yeah, during one, probably wine fueled. Yeah. There's a lot of wine in France. Go figure. Yeah. 
<laughs> gigantic, like multi-liter boxes of wine um, for the crew. Just th- that was like table wine for the not for like crew personal purposes. multi-liter boxes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, the Capri Sun. We got into this discussion about how easy it was to make fire or not. And basically, I think Harold or Dennis asked us, well, have any of you tried to make fire before? And, you know, here and there, some of us were Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, whatever. We've all tried, but not with those specific methods. So, yeah, they went out to a tourist shop, got us a, a make fire for kids kit. And then, and, you know, <laughs> for kids, start fires. Yeah. <laughs> Like 10 of us sat there trying to make fire and we're all like sweating and grunting and <laughs> screaming and we uh, we made smoke, but no fire. So Yeah. So it was a couple methods, right? Because somebody made, I think probably Dennis right, made a, a bow drill. Bow. Yep. There was a bow. And then we also tried like sparking it. And yeah, it was with um, we had like an iron pyrite and then some flint mm-hmm. and just like hitting them together. <laughs> like, where is spark? Why? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it turns out uh, we would die. Yeah, well, no, you, you just have to wait for a lightning strike. Yeah, yeah. just go get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was yeah. also thinking too about the um, the tiny plant bits episode was making me think of when I was working in Italy, um, and we were staying in this little tiny town called Tornareccio, and we lived in a school like a middle school or elementary school um, while we were digging there. And it was a field school. So we had college students, grad students, all that kind of thing. And and, uh, it rained like nonstop for an entire week. And so we couldn't go into the field. We couldn't actually dig. And we had to figure out things for the field school students to do. And so I was there as their sort of like environmental archaeology person. And there was quite a large backlog of heavy fraction from another paleoethnobotanist who had worked there um, that was just being stored in the school. uh, And no one had had time to look at it. And it was just these, you know, cases and cases of bags of dirt, essentially, that needed to be set um, needed to be sorted through. And so during this week of no digging, we had all of the field school students set up in like the gym of this school looking through these little piles of rocks for seeds or artifacts or bones <laughs> or anything. And I can remember one day where I went out to go check on something in another room and I came back and they had come up with this game where they all had paper plates of the the, the heavy fraction in front of them and they would go three, two, one, and they would all face plant into the <laughs> pile of rocks. And then they would lift themselves back up, and whoever had an artifact <laughs> or a plant remain stuck to their forehead won. <laughs> and they were keeping score of this, and then they would buy each other beer based on who had won. <laughs> so, so I think dumb. I totally drove crazy. <laughs> God. Yeah, uh, things that archaeologists come up with to entertain themselves <laughs> during uh, less exciting moments in the field are um, a thing of wonder and beauty. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I have I have one story that involves you and plant bits, but it also Uh-oh. involves a wild boar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of experimental archaeology, uh, was this the first year that you were at La Pharisee? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, as part of an experiment, so Harold Dibble's son, Flint, 
is mm. also an archaeologist and he's great on Twitter. If you want to follow Flint Dibble on Twitter for lots of sort of archaeological Twitter threads and really fun explanations of things, he uh-huh. is a zooarchaeologist with animal remains and he's interested in various things having to do with the the cooking and eating of animals. And so he somehow found a seller of wild boars in southwest France. I don't know. <laughs> somehow isn't there there are people who sell wild boars in yeah, southwest like France. Yeah, like a farm was, of wild yeah, boars, which yeah, is yeah. confusing. Well, oh, they okay. were sort You're of free range. Like a purveyor. I was yes, just like, yes. oh my God, they were in someone's basement. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> they were feral hogs in somebody's basement. No, no, this was, yes, a purveyor. That's a much better word than farmer <laughs> of wild boars. And uh, we got one, and mostly the crew dug a six foot pit in the <laughs> field behind Harold's French dig house. And uh, filled it with cobbles from the river and then laid fire, built a big old fire on top of those cobbles and then let it burn down to coals and then put more rocks on top to heat it. And then you, Chris, and um, a couple of other people foraged wild herbs because mm-hmm. they're Alaria all over was the- there. That was yeah, yeah. Well- <laughs> They're all over the place in the French countryside. Yeah. And so filled the wild boars uh, sort of internal cavities with herbs and lowered it down into the pit <laughs> and covered it up. And we all went to sleep in our tents with the beautiful porky smells wafting. Um, and then the next day at dinner time, we dug the thing up and butchered it with stone tools. And it was pretty delicious. And then Flint, yeah. Flint took the bones and buried them to sort of finish defleshing them and they're still there as far as i know <laughs> yeah i think so we kind of lost yeah, that the location was an unexpected experience because um fortunately we had an italian there who was somewhat more experienced with cooking large animals of that nature than most of us were and so she recommended some things where we you know i essentially never figured i'd be arm deep in a wild boar but um we, we never we think you will be but... variety of plants and <laughs> fruit and things and then put garlic in it and yeah it was it was pretty good. I wonder what those bones are up to. <laughs> I think they kind of got lost. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. We. I, I remember they got plotted in with a total station. So in theory, there are geospatial coordinates for that wild boar somewhere. <laughs> Let's keep going. Um, if our listeners wanted to take a deeper dive into phytoliths and or micro-remains in general, do you have resources that you can recommend as kind of a baby steps way of getting into studying them? Yeah, so there's a couple. Um, I can send you some links to put maybe in the show notes or something. Yeah, please. Um, I'm putting together an introductory class right now, and so I found some great, easy read-through things that people have put together about phytoliths. So if you Google phytoliths, there's something called on... Um, environmentalscience.org that does just a really nice run through of what phytoliths are. And then also, if you really want to do a more in-depth dive, I think I mentioned earlier, Dolores Paperno has a book called Phytoliths, and it's called something like a a comprehensive guide for archaeologists and paleoecologists. And it's really great because it really covers absolutely everything in a very clear way um, from how to sample for them, how to process them, how to analyze them, and then also a bunch of amazing case studies. So it's a really good overall view of phytoliths. Um, and it also includes other things about how to combine them with different kinds of microarchaeological methods. So I would highly recommend that. Cool. 
yeah, we will be we will happily link to anything you provide us with in the in the show notes for people to dive into. Yeah. Um, and so we've spent a little bit of time talking about um, so doing things doing things at archaeological sites. <laughs> How do archaeology do? <laughs> Whether it's it's uh, excavating or um, going through uh, materials that have been excavated or Sometimes cooking. with your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's the weirdness <laughs> when Anna was like, what questions do you have? And I was like, just trying to go with like the first thing that came to mind, which was like, what's the weirdest thing she's ever found? And then my, my next thought was like, like a snake in her mailbox. And I was like, no, then we got to no, narrow do it down. Um, that would be so, terrible. <laughs> what? Especially since she lives in Florida. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? <laughs> it could happen. Well, it in that happen. scene, I think one of the most horrifying things I ever found was came to site one day in Greece and found a giant wasp and a giant spider oh. having like a death match in my trench. So No, what? thank you. That was not good. At that point, I would go home. <laughs> I thought about it. I quit. It. <laughs> yeah, that was not fun. What? So yeah. Um, that's, but okay. Well, okay. I just like need a moment to process. That's yeah. Oh, that Greece, is truly. Really we wild. had giant centipedes. We had um. Yeah. No. We had scorpions. <laughs> we had wasps. All the things. Um. We also, I guess, maybe one of the weirder things I've ever found is just like a solitary human tooth. <laughs> where we you do. Really we do lose it. them. You know. Yeah. Uh, so, like, just a solitary adult human tooth was kind of strange. Yeah. Um, just, just hanging out. Yep. Just there? Just there, just in the middle of a room. And we're like, who did someone get punched in the face? I don't know. Um, oh. And then one of my favorites, though, is we called, we found these um, also in Greece. We would find all these little animal clay figurines, oh. and they make a ton of them of horses and cows and and all kinds of things and we found one that clearly at some point was supposed to be a cow um or i guess a bull because it had horns and the horns and all four of its legs had been broken off at some point um so we called him stumpy (laughs) (laughs) i i hope like i know that those little sticky outy bits could have been broken off you know while the the (laughs) artifact was sort of in the ground you know post-depositionally but i really hope that it was just a treasured little figurine that just got dropped a bunch of times until someone was finally like look (laughs) it's going away (laughs) yeah it's got nothing yeah stumpy poor stumpy (laughs) oh Oh, that's really cute are you still thinking about the wasp i'm still thinking about the tooth that's very poignant yeah i think we also found like um the end like a fingertip bone as well in that same room what yeah well okay so that maybe there were there was there were some partial human remains there that just otherwise went away and otherwise and what you found were these two very incongruous well, I'm bits thinking too about about the context a little more um that was at the the lower town in mycenae where there was um we ended up discovering that the course of the river was different than what we thought it was and so it had gone through part of the site we had um i think there was an iron age burial that had gotten truncated by some other buildings so 
while in the area we were digging, none of that was expected. There are processes by which those could have ended up there. Yeah. But yeah. It is disconcerting to just be digging and find a, <laughs> a branch. Seemingly I mean, I'm also bringing a lot to this, this anecdote because my team, my, my, ugh, my day job, like they have a virtual happy hour on Fridays mm. and the top and like, like office chat is even weirder like on zoom. And they were talking about multiple people have lost teeth while flossing. And oh. so I just, excuse was like, me, what I know. Oh, no. That's kind I of know. the point of flossing is to help retain your I Jeez. don't know what they I think they're flossing done. wrong. I think they're oh, yeah, I don't like that. It 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 got so weird so fast. <laughs> and I'm just imagining like here in my scene somebody flossing and being like, "Oh, oh, oh no." <laughs> oh, you never know. Oh, never, man. But never knows. Amber, I have a strategy for you for those online happy hours. Decline them. <laughs> That's one. But if you have to go, I saw this uh, a teacher friend posted this and one student named on the zoom meeting named himself reconnecting dot 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 and just <laughs> left his screen black with reconnecting dot 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 as the name in order to not participate in that day's classes <laughs> so if you need that as an option it's oh, there God, it was just <laughs> ingenious yeah, yeah. Well, while we all process all of that, wasps and teeth and stumpies, oh my, let's take another quick ad break and then we'll be back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. We're back. And now we come to the part of the show where we ask every guest the same two questions. And usually the answers we get are very different. So I guess I'll start. What is, Dr. Kristen Roth, the best or your favorite thing about archaeology? This is such a huge question. I know. I have like 15 answers to it. But I think it kind of boils down to what I said earlier, but in even more of a, I don't know, fluffy way of I love the connections that you can make in archaeology and I love being able to sit here as a person in 2020 and have a moment thinking about what someone did 200,000 years ago that's just to lose a tooth (laughs) right yeah if you you know the day you lost a tooth or um the day yeah your favorite figurine got put in the ground or um you know you put your your weird 
anti mosquito plant bits down. It's just improved everyone. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's just crazy to me to be able to think about that depth of time. And then that's still something that we can relate to happening. And that's just kind of a magical feeling to me. So I like being able to have those kind of feelings on a fairly regular basis. I think it's really mm-hmm. special and not something you get necessarily with other um, other disciplines. So I feel really lucky to be able to do that. It's oh. a cool job. Mm, it is. Um, and so if you could be a fly on the wall or perhaps a wasp fighting a spider <laughs> on the wall yeah. of, uh, for any Ooh. moment... It- <laughs> For for any moment in the past, whether it be sort of from history or prehistory or sort of within the discipline itself, um, what would you choose? Another big question. Sorry. No. Not sorry. Um, I think I would probably have to go back to what kind of sparked my love of archaeology in the first place, which was ancient Egypt. I can think of, I can remember like standing in the field museum with my family when I was growing up looking at their ancient Egypt exhibit. Mm -hmm. And so if I could go back to actual ancient Egypt and just, I don't know, soak it up. That would be, just run around and touch things. Hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Understand me. Yeah. I mean, I tried to, I tried to like teach myself hieroglyphics at like in eighth grade and middle Egyptian. And it turns out that's pretty difficult. So, um, yeah, I know (laughs) you have a hieroglyph (laughs) tattoo. I do. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think that would be my thing is I would just want to go and kind of soak up some atmosphere in ancient Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Get that back to your nice. roots. Yeah. Your, your intellectual roots. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> uh, Chris, thank you so much for not only regaling us with the very best <laughs> and most horrifying of stories, but uh, teaching us about phytoliths and, and what, what they can do, what they can't do. And, and what they are. Um, if people wanted to find you and maybe some of your work, where could they do that? So the best way to find my work would be on academia.edu or ResearchGate. You can just Google me and access to, to my papers and my research. And while um, you're there, if you could all just tell academia.edu to stop sending me emails. I would also like that. That would be wonderful. So maybe we'll go with research. Thank you for doing that. This is something that I think about regularly is like how great it is that people. Yeah. Because it's like you don't make just a little lens into like the publishing industry. Like you don't make money publishing your like your journal articles and like getting your research out there. Like and this is and this is a way for other researchers or just, people, you know, like your parents, like just people to access like these, um, your work that's usually behind like really high paywalls. And so this is a really great way to, um, democratize the the research. So thank you. Thank you. No, thank you for putting your work up on ResearchGate and academia. Yeah. I had a few months in between graduating with the PhD and getting a job where I didn't have access to anything. And so it is a topic that is near and dear to my heart to more access to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, And as podcasters who have infrequent access to things. (laughs) Totally. Um, But yeah, if you want to see pictures of plants and probably cats, you can also find me on Instagram at Crisco19. All right. So thank you guys. Thank you. you. I've learned a whole lot. (laughs) Thank you. And I'm sorry. And you're welcome. (laughs) Perfect. Thank you.
and I forgive you and you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.